2: If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san Diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.
3: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
0: Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene, was we'll good.
3: But be careful because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano.
2: Huh? Oh!
4: also, with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hello, and welcome to Sabre production of iHeartRadio. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Volkelbaum. And today we're talking about Edna Lewis. Yes. It's been a long time since we've done a a
1: profile of deliciousness, as we call them. (laughs) Yes.
0: Uh, Yeah. And we wanted to feature Edna Lewis because she was a a chef and writer who, as a Black woman from the American South, helped elevate fresh, seasonal American cooking um, in a time when that combination of things wasn't even really considered to exist she's considered a bit of a of a like chef's chef um like even though her work was impressive and had a lot of impact on chefs in america um and on people who teach chefs in america she's unfortunately a little bit of like a like a cult figure um mm. like like meaning that although she was well known and respected in industry circles she she never became the sort of public figure that some chefs doing similar work at the time did
1: yeah and um I I had never heard of her. And I feel like you you have a lot more knowledge of of these people in in the cooking world than I do. Uh I remember when we did like our food TV one, I had heard of maybe two people. On there. Oh. <laughs> it's just like a, a big I didn't have food network and honestly like it's funny to me. It's almost like when I admit to people I don't really listen to podcasts. <laughs> um, I I just never, even though I love food and I'm fascinated with it, I never really read books or watched TV about it. and I still don't, um, unless it's for this job.
0: Sure. Yeah. Oh, well, I think that that's a danger as a like professional day job podcaster, um, yeah. or or you know um, human who does a lot of writing in in any given field is that, you know, like, by the time I'm done with my day, I do not want to listen to another podcast. I don't want to read about more food stuff. I want to, like, binge watch five episodes of Supernatural and go to sleep. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) This
1: is the darkest secret of a podcaster can reveal. I hate it when people ask me, like, what podcast do you listen to? Um, I do have some. I do have some. But,
0: uh <laughs> but it's an extremely curated list, yeah,
1: yeah, and i'm I'm very glad that you brought Edna Lewis to my attention, um, and yeah, you kinda you jumped in and answered my question before I could even <laughs> ask it, Lauren., uh, you're so <laughs> eager.
0: <laughs> I was, I was uh, but, but do you do you want to ask it anyway, as a transition into her biography?
1: You know? I, I suppose I will, Lauren,
0: for okay. for, uh,
1: for how we, we want to uphold our traditions here.
0: Right, for formality's sake. Exactly. So, Edna Lewis.
1: Who was she? Who was she? Well, I get to be you for a <laughs> second. Um, Edna Lewis was born in Freetown, Virginia on April 13th. 1916, one of eight children. And Freetown was a small town populated by formerly enslaved people after emancipation, in part founded by her grandfather.
0: Uh, yeah, his family was one of three that founded Freetown. Um, she, she calls it a village, really, uh, a farming community. And these families built the town from scratch. Uh, it's church and entertainment hall, it's yearly holidays—
1: he also opened the first school in Freetown and held classes in his living room. Her grandmother had been enslaved as a brick mason.
0: And yeah, uh, Lewis was, was close with her family and, and her grandfather. She, she wrote about her grandparents' previous lives when they were enslaved. Uh, their family was all close um, in a big house that her grandparents built to keep everyone close together. Uh, her her grandfather, parents, three sisters, two brothers, and cousins who, quote, stayed with us from time to time. As a
1: child, Edna worked on her grandfather's farm, which introduced her to food production at a really early age.
0: Uh, yeah, Freetown aimed to be as self-sufficient as possible, growing almost all of their food. Um, they, they tried to only purchase things like sugar and flour and coffee, uh, things that Required like specialty growing and processing. So Lewis's early life was steeped in a uh, seasonal food and eating.
1: Yes, and one of my this is one of my favorite things I read about her. Um, at the time, as she was learning to cook, there weren't a lot of modern cooking tools available to her, but she didn't let that stand in her way, and she used these creative solutions, like like um, using coins to measure things in place of measuring cups and spoons. The legend goes that she knew a cake was done by the
0: sounds it made,
1: Oof. which I love. I love that.
0: <laughs> I mean, I can I can give a, a cake a, a solid finger poke and be like, "Oh, that's the right texture." But I have never, I cannot do that. That's not not my skill.
1: Nope, me either. <laughs> Hmm. After the death of her father when she was 16, Lewis moved to Washington, D.C. for a brief period and then to New York City where she got a job as a laundress. However, she had never ironed before and within three (laughs) hours she was fired. I have been there. Um, She could sew though. (laughs) And she found a job quickly after as a seamstress. And she made quite a reputation for herself for her work for celebrities and her West African-inspired dresses.
0: Yeah, like she was sort of a big deal. She sewed for Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, and she
1: also campaigned for FDR, and she had a series of other odd jobs.
0: Uh, In a 2005 documentary about her called Fried Chicken and Sweet Potato Pie, she talks about how during this time she she felt alienated as as a Black woman living in the North.
1: She did meet and marry her husband, Steve Kingston, there.
0: And he was an activist and a communist, and she spoke very little about him on the record um, or about her ties, especially through him, um, to the American Communist Party, although she did say that the Communist Party USA were the only people encouraging Black people in New York City at the time to, to really participate in their community. Um, one of the odd jobs that she held was typing for the party's paper, The Daily Worker.
1: That's right. Um, In 1949, she was hired as the head chef of a new French-inspired restaurant called Cafe Nicholson in Manhattan's East Side.
0: Yeah, her friends John Nicholson and a photographer by the name of Carl Bissinger opened it up, um, and they all knew each other through the Communist Party. Um, They invited her to come run their kitchen.
1: And this was a big deal. This was when female chefs were rare and black women as chefs were even rarer. The restaurant was popular among the posh celebrity crowd with patrons like Marlon Brando, Greta Garbo, Eleanor Roosevelt, Tennessee Williams, and Salvador Dali. Which, by the way, Lauren, has Paul ever told you about his idea for a Salvador Dali-themed food truck?
0: That would be amazing. Uh, Dali... I bel- am I am I remembering this right? Did he write a cookbook? Am I thinking of Kurt Vonnegut? What's going on in my brain right now? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I approve of this idea of Paul's and I want it to happen.
1: I do too. He's got a whole pitch. It's pun- based. Please reach out to him. Let him explain it to you. <laughs> it's excellent. I'm mad I didn't think of it.
0: Oh, um, shall do. shall do.
1: Yes. Uh, but anyway. While this restaurant was French inspired, uh, Edna Lewis frequently prepared Southern dishes there too. Allegedly, Truman Capote would plead with her to make biscuits, and her chocolate souffle was a well known signature
0: dish. But people there assumed that she had trained in France, um, uh, including fellow Southerner William Faulkner. <laughs>
1: She did this for three years before she left the Post, though she remained on as a business partner. She began cultivating her personal brand and career lecturing at the American Museum of Natural History, for instance.
0: She also took prominent jobs as a chef and private caterer. And uh, it, it was it was a big deal that even some of what she was cooking at the time was Southern cuisine. Um, other Black chefs and chefs from the South— considered those dishes to be kind of like only for, for home cooking. Mm-hmm. Uh, she and her husband, around the same time, also owned and operated a pheasant farm, um, <laughs> which was around round unsuccess.
1: Oh, uh-huh. I
0: mean, pheasant yeah.
1: farm, I've already got some alarms <laughs> going on. <laughs> some concerns. Uh,
0: uh-huh, yeah. Um, but, uh... Uh, yeah, she, she reportedly left Cafe Nicholson at her husband's urging. Um, Nicholson would later say that, um, that her husband, uh, Steve Kingston, was sort of always going on about how she should be making her food for the common people, not the bourgeoisie.
1: Mm-hmm. In 1972, she wrote the Edna Lewis Cookbook with the help of socialite Evangeline Peterson, and it focused on bringing fresh seasonal ingredients to American homes.
0: Uh, Yeah, the the food scene in America was blossoming at the time, as we've talked about in a few uh, different different episodes here, uh, partially thanks to the work of folks like James Beard and Julia Child. And this first cookbook that Lewis wrote um, featured a a wide range of European and Euro-American recipes, um, you know, the the, the repertoire of an urban and sophisticated chef, um, along with A few Southern classics. Um, Her husband passed away while she was writing the book, though, and I do not believe that she ever remarried.
1: Right before the book published, while taking a break from professional cooking after suffering a broken leg, she met Judith Jones, who was a well-known cookbook editor who had worked with Julia Child. Uh, Jones encouraged Lewis to incorporate more of her own voice in her next project, and Lewis took note. And her next book did just that, and we'll get into that. But first, we're going to pause for a quick break for a word from our sponsor.
0: This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks
1: are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's
0: gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one
1: dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit pronamel.com.
2: Ready? Okay. Okay.
3: Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your
4: podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States
0: Yes. Uh, Judith Jones really worked with Edna Lewis um, to, to encourage her to get these, these stories that she would tell about, about cooking, about her, her life growing up, um, down on the page, the way that she, she talked about them.
1: So The Taste of Country Cooking debuted in 1976, and it featured memories from her childhood, food traditions from the South, and influences and themes of her African-American heritage. And this book frequently gets credit for being the first of a series of cookbooks that showcased all that Southern food can be, that it was something to be respected instead of something looked down on.
0: And her voice in it is just so strong. Um, I, I wanted to read a, a quick passage uh, from. So, so the book. The book is split up into into seasons, and there are frequently these long descriptions of how her her meals and recipes came about. Um, in addition to the actual recipes themselves, and so um, at the at the top of the book in in the spring section, she writes, "Breakfast was about the best part of the day." There was an almost mysterious feeling about passing through the night and awakening to a new day. Everyone greeted each other in the morning with gladness and a real sense of gratefulness to see the new day. If it was a particularly beautiful morning, it was expressed in the grace. Spring would bring our first, and just about only, fish, shad. It would always be served for breakfast, soaked in salt water for an hour or so, rolled in seasoned cornmeal, and fried carefully in home-rendered lard with a slice of smoked shoulder for added flavor— there were crispy fried white potatoes, fried onions, batter bread, any food left over from supper, blackberry jelly, delicious hot coffee, and cocoa for the children. And, perhaps, if a neighbor dropped in, dandelion wine was added. With the morning feeding of the animals out of the way, breakfast was enjoyable and leisurely. Oh, that's beautiful. And the book is just full of this prose. Um... Uh yeah, and, and and like I said, so, so the recipes are divided into seasons, um, and they are as much stories as they are recipes. Um, you've got entries like an early spring dinner after sheep shearing, um, featuring braised mutton ribs with thyme and onion, uh, skillet-cooked wild asparagus, a salad of beet tops and other garden greens, potato yeast rolls, uh, blemange, which is a creamy like almond and vanilla gelatin dessert, and butter cookies. Um, For summer, there's making ice cream on a summer afternoon featuring vanilla custard and peach ice creams, a morning after hog butchering breakfast from the fall, and a dinner celebrating the last of the barnyard fowl for the winter. Uh, A lot of the stories in the book reference older technologies and methods like wood stove, stuff like that, but the recipes themselves are revised for, for modern cooks and modern kitchens. And this this cookbook is considered to be the the first entry in like Nouvelle Southern cookbooks, soon to be booming business. Um, the the same way that Nouvelle cuisine in France was at the time refocusing on on taking, like taking good ingredients and not mucking them about too much. Um, that that's what these recipes were doing for Southern cooking. Um, it, it's it's something that. From a food and cooking standpoint, the American public was kind of hungry for. um, You know, you you were coming off of decades of just increased industrialization of food, of convenience foods. Uh, 76 was the same year um, that this book came out that Alice Waters debuted an American menu at Chez Panisse.
1: On top of that is one of the first American cookbooks authored by a Black woman to reach a national audience.
0: Yeah, this this book was really revolutionary in a, in a number of ways. Um, you know, remember that it was coming out within a decade of the national laws and rulings that banned discrimination based on race and skin color. Um, interracial marriage had only been legalized nine years previous in 1967. Uh, the abolition of poll taxes, which were one of the many ways that formerly Confederate slaveholding states actively prevented Black Americans from accessing their equal rights after emancipation. Um, And that had only happened 10 years previous, in 1966. The Civil Rights Movement had put this kind of monolithic view of the culture of the South on the national stage in in a very negative light. Um, A view partially left over from the Civil War. um, Of Southerners being poor and ignorant. Um, And simultaneously, over... The the few decades leading up to this, um, there had arisen this, like, myth of the gentility of the white antebellum South, you know, like, gone with the wind, all that kind of stuff. And these two narrow-beamed views of Southern culture really ignore and and erase the actual lived experience of Southern people, and, and especially Black Southerners. And and these views persist today, but but books like Lewis's fight against them by showing people that that these cultures are valid and beautiful, and like yeah complicated, but but not to be ignored or erased. Um, you know, it, it shows that America does have a cuisine, and it's southern cuisine, and it exists thanks to Black people. Mm-hmm. In 1988, Lewis
1: followed the taste of country cooking with In Pursuit of Flavor.
0: Uh, Yeah, uh, also also with um, the the encouragement of Judith Jones, who she would remain friends with for the rest of her life.
1: While she did spend a good chunk of her career cooking in the South, she did move to New York to work at Gage and Tolner, which was a restaurant in Brooklyn when she was 72. But she moved to Georgia in the 1990s to retire— From restaurants, at least. (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: During that decade, she and a coalition of friends formed the Society for the Revival and Preservation of Southern Food, with the goal of sharing traditional Southern recipes and preparations. She became a friend and mentor to Scott Peacock, who was the head chef at the Georgia Governor's Mansion, and the two of them worked together to write The Gift of Southern Cooking, Recipes and Revelations from Two Great American Cooks, which was published in 2003.
0: Uh, Peacock and Lewis were, were great friends, and for the last few years of Lewis's life, they lived together in Decatur, Georgia, which is just kind of down the street from us, um, with him acting as her caretaker. Uh, and he, he's a, a white gay chef who was born in 1963. Um, they, they were an interesting pair, uh, but she had never had any children or, or made that much money from her work.
1: And she died in 2006, just short of her 90th birthday.
0: That same year, the 30th edition of The Taste of Country Cooking was released with a foreword by Alice Waters.
1: Over the span of her life, she accumulated a lot of awards. In 1996, Johnson & Wales awarded her with an honorary PhD in culinary arts. In 1999, she received the James Beard Living Legend Award. And dame de Scoffier International named her a grand dame, grand James, I would say. And she became the first recipient of the Southern Foodways Alliance's Lifetime Achievement Award. Her face was on a stamp, which I know compared <sighs> to those other things might not be super cool, but I love it. I think that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> oh, absolutely. In 2018, a book of essays celebrating Lewis, written by professional chefs, food writers, educators, friends, and family called Edna Lewis at the table with an American original, came out.
0: Um, and uh, s- some of these essays and uh, some other journalistic pieces that have been written about Lewis explore the notion that, that although she, she did intensely influence American cuisine through her writing about provincial American life— Um, There's also a lot that we don't know about her. Um, And in all likelihood, she was a lot more complicated than this image that's often painted of her as this grand dame of the halcyon days of Southern cooking. Uh, Or maybe that she aspired to be that straightforward, uh, that that's what she wanted for the world. Mm -hmm. In 2008, posthumously... Gourmet Magazine published an essay that Lewis had written way back in 1992 titled, What is Southern? It was it was lost. Her friends found it and uh, submitted it for publication. Uh, and it's been called something of a manifesto. Uh, and I'd like to read a couple passages from it here. Um, Southern is Bessie Smith. Give me a pig foot and a bottle of beer. Southern is a great yeast roll, the dough put down overnight to rise, and the next morning shaped into rolls and baked. Served hot from the oven, they are as light as a dandelion in a high wind. Southern is a sun dog, something like a rainbow or the man in the moon on a late summer afternoon. Southern is a mint julep, a goblet of crushed ice with a sprig of mint tucked in the side of the glass, plain sugar syrup the consistency of kerosene poured over the ice, then a jigger of bourbon. Stir and bruise the mint with a silver spoon— Sip and enjoy. Southern is a hot summer day that brings on a violent thunderstorm, cooling the air and bringing up smells of earth that tempt us to eat the soil. Southern is Tennessee Williams in streetcar. Southern is a spring house filled with perishables, kept cool by a stream running through, and a spring keeper, a salamander, is there watching over. And uh, then the um, the the last the last paragraph of the of the essay. Southern is all the unsung heroes who passed away in obscurity. So many great souls have passed off the scene. The world has changed. We are now faced with picking up the pieces and trying to put them into shape, document them so the present-day young generation can see what Southern food was like. The foundation on which it rested was pure ingredients, open-pollinated seed, planted and replanted for generations, natural fertilizers. We grew the seeds of what we ate. We worked with love and care. My heart is swelling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, she she was a really incredible writer. Yeah. Uh, I I very highly recommend um, definitely picking up uh, the Taste of Country Cooking, and the collection of essays is is great as well. Um, uh, Edna Lewis at the table with an American original. Uh, in reading through those essays, uh, uh, Dr. Jessica Harris came up, yeah, in like a lot of them, mm-hmm. uh, and I was I was really uh, <laughs> proud that we got that interview, uh, and just um, uh, thinking about how she's doing, and I hope she's doing okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah, her name comes up a lot in in research that we do, for sure.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I'm, I'm kind of glad that I didn't know <laughs> exactly how big of a deal she was when we went in there, because I would have been even more terrified.
1: Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I definitely been moved by the things I've read by Edna Lewis, and I'm really glad we talked about her. And I think that it will be... One of the books that I actually am going to read for fun and not for work.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I aspire to to do that thing all the way through as well myself.
1: Yes, yes. Um, And that brings us to the end of this episode, but we do have a little bit more for you.
0: We do, but first we've got one more quick break for a word from our sponsor.
3: Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue.
1: I feel nice and like I'm out in a meadow and I'm doing kind of the like princess swing around. She takes in the the beauty (laughs) and the animals around
0: her. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Good. uh, One of those good like animation crane shots that I always really respect.
1: Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I'm glad I had captured at least a part of it. Anthony wrote, regarding mole, during a listener mail, it was mentioned that the writer's mother used peanut butter in her mole. In culinary school, we had a few weeks of Tex-Mex cuisine with a heavy focus on Mexican. During my research, I did find that mole is as diverse as a Marcella spice blend can be in Indian families or regions, meaning every family or region can have a different approach to making mole. Molay can be made with chopped, crushed, or ground nuts. Recipes I uncovered and cooked while in culinary arts called for cacao and crushed almonds. I remember this specifically as I can recall that while the flavor was beautiful, I was not a fan of the texture the almonds left. I wish I had ground them more, perhaps into an almond butter before adding it to the mole. I hope my experiences with mole can answer the writer's question about peanut butter and mole. For me, this seems like a logical substitution for other ground nuts that can be added to molay's. With regards to mispronunciation, I can't remember the podcast, but I believe Annie mentioned Giacomo, but pronounced it Gacomo. That sounds like me. I won't deny it. I remember because I made the same mistake once in front of my wife's family. Being Italian, myself and my wife, a first-generation Italian-American, her mom was born in Italy, I was heavily chastised and berated for saying it wrong. It's hard enough to convince people I am really Italian and a redhead, (laughs) but not being able to speak the language just fortifies to them that I'm lying about my heritage. The common nickname for Giacomo is Jack. Yes, I can't believe I've heard that. I don't know what I was doing. But uh, the pronunciation should be similar. Every Italian will argue that their dialect and region are the correct ones, but I've come to <laughs> learn that the pronunciation is more like Giacomo. Now, don't say it too fast. The O is drawn out to a long O sound. Uh-oh, now I'm in my head. Um, sometimes <laughs> the Jack part <laughs> sounds just like Jacques with a sound. Just thought I, I would help just in case Annie meets the love for her life and his name is Giacomo. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> the story that reigned me in on my culinary career and obsessions with the story of capers. When I was in Italy walking the cliffs of, uh uh-oh, you've given me another thing to pronounce, Capri? With my wife and her mom, I noticed an overgrown plant growing out of the side of a wall. The plant had little berries on it. I asked my mother-in-law what it was, and she told me that it was a caper plant. Being a stupid American, I wanted to pick them. She immediately hit my (laughs) hand, and it felt as if she had a hidden wooden spoon with her. It hurt. Side note, I firmly believe every Italian woman has a wooden spoon on her at all times to hit the (laughs) men when they are stupid but maybe that's just me. I have so many welts from wooden spoons. She told me they were poisonous, that they needed to be brined first before we can eat them. Having known that capers have been around for thousands of years, my mind asked itself a spiritual question. How thousands of years ago did they figure out that this poisonous berry was edible if they brined it? From there, I was hooked. I am unsure how legitimate my story is on capers, but perhaps a caper episode would be nice to have. Yes, I am hooked to this is exactly this is what got me into this podcasting gig is this. I've gotta find out now. I've got to know. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Oh, and, and that truth. is that is on our short list um for for yes. sure. I'm just waiting for a day when I have enough attention to truly concentrate on the caper.
1: Yes, and I already my my brain is like puns, puns, puns. So many caper puns to be made. <laughs> oh no. Also, I'm I'm 100% certain that my future love of my life will be named Giacomo. And you have saved me. A great embarrassment.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I could have lost him forever. But yeah,
0: but now. but Now.
1: now, I am saved. I look forward to our <laughs> uh, happy future, living happily ever after together.
0: With Giacomo. Yes. <laughs> oh, um, Hannah wrote... I've been listening to you two for quite a while, I think maybe since the beginning of foodstuff days. I've never written in before, but felt compelled to after the Listener Mail 2 episode where someone wrote in asking if we don't have uh, Australian thick shakes in the United States. I felt the need to set the record straight. My credentials I'm from the US and had been working at a cafe in Australia before the pandemic forced me to come back home. So, an Australian milkshake is basically just milk blended with some flavoring. Usually, there's a singular scoop of ice cream thrown in there, or if you're at the place I worked, whipped cream when you run out of ice cream. But the point is that it is flavored and slightly creamier and frothier than plain old milk. An Australian thick shake has a few more scoops of ice cream and is more similar to an American milkshake. Uh, A blended concoction of ice cream and milk that can be too thick to really be drunk through a straw, but you try anyway before sometimes giving up and going for the spoon. I never found thick shakes to be as thick as I remember milkshakes being in the U.S., but to be fair, I'm no connoisseur. Unrelated to milkshakes, because of the pandemic and not going to the grocery store as often as we used to, my parents and I have been going through the cabinets and seeing what we could make with whatever we find— One thing we found was two cans of poppy seed filling. While I was a little wary of the Best Buy date being in 2015, we figured the can was still intact and wasn't bulging or anything, so it would probably be okay. We made hamantaschen. I hadn't had them since I was a kid and had never made them myself, so it was a fun experiment. They turned out really well, but only used half the can of poppy seeds. I think my dad ate the rest of it on toast. (laughs) Hopefully, we remember to use the other can before another five years passes. We've also been cooking some Austrian, Ukrainian, and Jewish foods in an attempt to connect a little bit with our family history. My grandfather immigrated to the States in the late 1930s. I never met him, but my mom remembers him talking about plum dumplings. So that was the first thing we tried. The ones we made didn't stick together quite right, and we ended up with some plums and empty dough shells floating in boiling water. Hopefully, we can get it to work better next time. Yes. I've never heard of that, but that sounds really good. Right? Yeah. Oh, and I have, um, I have like a lot of apricots right now. Um, oh. One of my friends got like a box of food from one of these places that's trying to distribute food to to humans who, who need it right now. Um, and, uh, you know, she works in theater. She and many of my friends are, are humans who are very glad to have these services happening um, in our community right now. But <laughs> she also just received like a heckin' flat of apricots. And she was like... <laughs> Dude, please take some of these apricots. <laughs> 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 oh, so I'm thinking. I've been I've been thinking about making a, a cobbler, but now I'm Ooh. like, what if I make uh-huh. a dumpling?
1: Ooh, awesome. Okay, right. I've All got round. I've got a suggestion. All right, hear yeah. me out. Hear me out. Okay. Um, okay. So I had a bit <laughs> of a mix up the other day, where I was. <laughs> I was doing curbside pickup of some alcohol, okay. and I, I was using an app, it's all online, and there was a mix-up, and I wasn't mad about it, because, uh, you know, well, it wasn't worth getting mad about, whatever. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. We're all
0: doing just the best that we can under troubled times.
1: Yeah, I, I can wait for my box of wine, it's okay. Yeah.
0: Um, <laughs> so I
1: was sitting there, and the, my trunk was open, and I'm just feeling all, like, all this weight being added, and I'm thinking, I did not order that much. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> so I get back to my apartment. I open the trunk. They, for some reason, I can't figure out if they did this because they felt bad or that it was another order mix up. But um, there's, I have an entire case of huge handles of vodka now. Um, oh. Like not, like the wine bottle, like the big jugs. Wow. I, I got a whole thing. Um I didn't pay for it for sure. Uh, so, what huh. if we did something with apricots and vodka? What if we combine our excess <laughs> <laughs> and make something that could potentially be really gross?
0: <laughs> uh, Doesn't that sound I mean, exciting? Look up some <laughs> recipes. I, I've made I've made like a like a sour orange wine from like macerated sour oranges and vodka before uh maybe maybe it could work similarly i'm not you know i can check it out yeah but you should also
1: definitely make cobbler and dumplings that probably be better than whatever we would get out of that experiment but also if you just want some vodka i will give you some
0: yeah, yeah, let me know. That sounds great. <laughs> I'm not going to turn it down.
1: Well, if any listener seriously has any suggestions for what to do with either or both of those things, um, please send them to us. Thanks so much for these listeners for writing in. You can email us. Our email is hello at com.
0: We're also on social media. You can find us uh, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at SaverPod, and we do hope to hear from you. Saver is production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks, as always, to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. Thanks to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way.